Welcome to the Gospel 101 Podcast. I'm Pastor Tom, and this is week five of our class in which we are looking at the section in James Chung's book, True Story, that is entitled Restored for Better. Now, just to get you up to speed to where we're at now in this book, you'll recall that James Chung has set before us the main character, Caleb, who has had somewhat of a crisis of faith as he's interacted with his friend Anna, who has brought up all these accusations and gripes against the Christian faith, and which has forced him to really reconsider what is the meaning of the gospel. And he's been dissatisfied by the answers that he's gotten from his pastor, but he's been finding some solace and guidance from a professor at his university named Chalandra Jones. And what Shalandra Jones has been doing is laying out for him a picture of God's ultimate and perfect plan for mankind and how this connects into our understanding of the gospel. So she first begins by explaining to Caleb that God originally created all of creation, and specifically his human creation, to be good. God created mankind to be his image bearers, to reflect his goodness and righteousness, his his lovingness, um, as they lived out life here on earth, taking care of God's creation and taking care of one another and worshiping him. However, of course, we recognize that as we look around the look at the world around us, that things do not stay that way, that things have fallen apart. And this is a crucial point for us as we engage with other folks because everyone in this world recognizes that something is wrong. Things don't seem to be the way that they're supposed to be. And so in our last section that we went through in week four, we saw how Sherlander Jones took Caleb into considering how things got damaged. And Some of you may not have been able to get together for our in-person meeting. And so just to kind of get right to the point uh, of what this section was really driving at is it's, it's bringing us to consider what is the problem? What is the problem that the gospel ultimately ends up addressing? Um, and, but it's necessary in order to understand the answer to the problem, or to understand the nature of the problem, we first must understand what God's good design is. If if the world is as God desired and created it to be, as things currently stand, then there isn't any problem. And so we first must under- understand God's original purpose if we're, under- if we're going to understand the problem. And so Shalanda Drones has laid all that out. And essentially what she's doing in the last section is pointing out that the fundamental human problem is not so much a legal problem. We do have a legal problem with God in that we've committed acts of injustice against others and against God himself. And there's a penalty due for that, of course. But really and truly, there's a problem in our human nature. We are sick to our very bones with sinfulness. And 
this just corrupts us and it spreads to it spreads to generation after generation and it has all kinds of deleterious effects on creation and all the structures of human society and so the question that we're moving on to in this next section is how does god address this problem how does god bring redemption and salvation we understand that the solution that scripture puts forward is god's son jesus and this solution is commonly captured by the term gospel and at the beginning of this course we already discussed what we think that the gospel means what the word gospel means and we discussed how it means good news but at this point in this book what Chandra Jones presses Caleb to try to understand is what is the good news what is the gospel according to Jesus now as you'll remember from your reading Caleb has a bit of a hard time answering this question and I think it's good to think about why it is that he has a hard time answering this question. In part, I think he has a hard time answering this question because our understanding of the good news has been reduced to the means of salvation, Christ's death and resurrection that Paul really picks up on in his epistles. And we see Paul explicate this really quite well in the epistle to the Romans. And this is why um, it's very common to hear about Romans Road as, uh, as kind of in a way in which you can lead people to an understanding of salvation by just taking them through various verses through the book of Romans. But when we ask, was the gospel according to Jesus? It can seem a little bit more challenging because there's not necessarily a very neat summation necessarily that Jesus gives of the gospel. Instead, what we find is that it's stretched across the entirety of his earthly ministry. And so I really hope that you read the scripture passages that were assigned for this week, because what they'll do is help you have that scriptural backing to understand the picture of the gospel that Christ is painting. So when we consider the good news that Jesus preaches, it's that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when you look in Isaiah 61 and Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, you can see that there's this anticipation of a Messiah to come, a time to come when God's kingdom will will be established when God's people will be restored. 
And what Jesus is pointing out in his ministry to those whom he, to whom he's speaking is that it's in his person that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And the way that he demonstrates this is through the miracles that is that he performs and the fact that he's preaching with authority. Shalandra Jones picks up on this. He he says, but I, he says, I say to you, instead of ha- having to reference other rabbinic sources, Jesus just says, you've heard it said this, but I say to you. And principally, where we see Jesus staking his claim of authority is on the sermon on the is when he preaches the sermon on the mount in which kind of reflecting the giving of the law on mount sinai to moses jesus in his sermon on the mount lays out the standards of the kingdom of god and essentially the picture that christ paints is that the kingdom of god is this place where god rules and reigns completely among his people. Now we understand that God in fact possesses all authority and that he can give life and take life away as he wills, but when we're thinking about the kingdom of God and its reign and rule in the sense that Christ is describing, it's a place in which everyone has been brought into accordance with that rule. So this is kind of getting to the second question that I gave to if you're following through in your questions, what is the kingdom of God? And it, and Trilandra Droz talks about how heavens are rushing all around us, which is kind of a weird way to um, describe it. I don't know if I would describe it exactly that way, but what she's really trying to get at and what she's really trying to challenge in terms of our understanding of heaven is that heaven is not simply a place. It is a place, but what's important about that place is that it's the place where God rules and reigns in everything. God is all in all. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, that in the end, God will be all in all. And this is the promise that awaits us. But it's a promise that meets us even now here today. It meets us in the middle of history, between the times in Christ Jesus. And that God begins to become all in all in his people, in us. And that's a work that begins today. And so as you, as you might imagine, and as the book is kind of taking us, this is obviously going to have some real implications for the way that we live out our lives. Um, but we're not going to get into that in this section. But we want to, at, at this point, just consider how God gets us there, how God gets his people to the point where they're the sort of people that he's created and called them to be, because we see how God called called Israel to be his people, how he selected them, and yet they consist, consistently failed again and again. So what changes? How do things get changed? 
Well, we see in the Gospels that Christ points to himself as that means by which God produces the radical change, the radical salvation that is necessary for us to be reconciled to him. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out, hey, listen, you've got to be really righteous, not just superficially in the sense that, you know, oh, I haven't slept around or I haven't murdered anybody. Jesus says, no, if you've thought hateful thoughts or if you've thought lustful thoughts, then you're basically a murderer. You're basically an adulterer. You're doing those very things in your heart. And he says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And ultimately, in Matthew 5, 48, he says, you've got to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, obviously, none of us can be perfect. All of us come up short of that. But as we see, especially in the Gospel of John, what we see is that Jesus points to himself as the way into the kingdom. He says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And as he goes on in John John 14 and in John 15, he's using these analogies of himself being this the sheep gate by which his sheep are led in and out and how he's the shepherd who brings salvation and of how he's the true vine that brings life to the branches so that they might bear fruit and that if no one's attached to him then they're good for nothing basically they're only good for a a giant bonfire and so this is informing on our, our understanding of the gospel in this way in that the good news is that the kingdom of god is upon us and that god's rule and reign is going to be all in all And that the way that we can be brought into that kingdom is through Jesus Christ. And the way way in which that way is made possible is by Christ's atoning sacrifice. Now, at this point, I want to ask you the question explicitly that I've given you is for you to consider is how do you understand Christ's work of atonement? This is something that I don't know that many people have thought about because often we assume that there's only one way of understanding the atonement. Um, But as you should see in the handout that I either printed out for you or emailed to you, I've, I've given you a list of different views on the atonement. And so just reviewing those really quick, first we see that there's the ransom theory that maintains that Christ delivered himself over to Satan in his death as a ransom in order to free humanity from satanic enslavement. However, Christ turns the table on Satan by his resurrection from the dead three days later and thus redeems mankind. Now, not too many people nowadays hold to the ransom theory, but this was something that was um, more common in the early days of the church. And we also have the Christus Victor understanding of the atonement which basically contends that humanity in all of creation have been caught under the power of sin and death and that the way that Christ atones or wins our redemption is Christ conquers sin and death by his resurrection. 
he defeats their power and thereby offers liberation to all mankind. And there's the satisfaction theory of the atonement that um, is focused on restoring God's honor and that by Christ's obedience, Christ earns a surplus of merit that he can then extend to us so that we can be uh, saved. And then there's the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement that I think most people um, uh, tend to adhere to is probably the one that you're most familiar with. And that's that human sin has incurred a punishment that because of our sin, we deserve to die. And that the only way that that can be avoided, the only that there's no way of basically avoiding that punishment needing to be cashed out. And so the only way that we can get that penalty removed is if someone else takes that penalty. And so the idea is, is that Christ achieved reconciliation between God and man by taking the punishment of mankind upon himself and his death, thereby perfectly satisfying God's justice while also perfectly demonstrating God's mercy. And there's the governmental understanding, which is the idea that while Christ didn't receive the exact punishment that we were due, the idea was that God had to punish Jesus in order to show that he is just and that sin doesn't go unpunished. Then I include this theory that you definitely wouldn't have heard of because it's a theory of the atonement that I've been working on. Um, the name is unique because it's a name that I came up with, but the ideas in it aren't, aren't, aren't unique. It'd be a little bit troublesome if there was no precedent for them. But it's the idea that atonement turns on the life of Christ and that atonement is essentially offered by the offer of Christ's perfect life unto God. And that the cleansing that's foreshadowed in the Old Testament by the application of the lifeblood of animal sacrifices that were without blemish is fully realized in the costly offering of Christ's perfect life, which not only cleanses sinners of sins committed, but also cleanses them of their sinfulness itself so that they are given new hearts. This costly restoration satisfies God's justice and offers a just alternative to the equally just punishment of sin. So another way of perhaps characterizing this would be Christ's work of atonement is a cleansing ransom. And that God has definitely do something because of our sin, but that ransom, that gift that is given to God because of human sin is the restoration of his people, the restoration of all of creation. Um, and, but it's a costly restoration because Christ suffered. And so that that makes it a very precious gift. Now, the last theory um, is actually one that I think is outside of our orthodoxy, even though it has some truth to it. And that's that this theory of atonement holds that Jesus brings atonement insofar as he sets up sets up for us a perfect moral example that we ourselves may follow of our own accord and thus reconcile ourselves to God. Um, now, of course, the problem with this is, is that essentially Jesus isn't 
saving us here. There's nothing substitutionary here. Jesus is basically just saying, here's a really good example of how to live a human life. Now you do that and get yourself right with God. Now, that goes against everything (laughs) that we see in Scripture. I mean, just from what we've referenced in, in the Gospels where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. Um, but it is true that Jesus was that perfect human who we should all desire to be like. It's just that we don't save ourselves in trying to be like him. It's that we are saved by him being in us and causing and creating us to be this new creation, to be the sorts of people that God has created us to be. Now, I'd love to do, and perhaps by the time someone else is listening to this recording, I will be offering a class on atonement um, just because these are really, atonement is really an area that's worth studying in greater depth. Um, But hopefully this kind of gets your wheels turning a little bit and just considering how our understanding of the atonement might affect how we understand the gospel and how we explain the gospel because if the human problem is limited to a legal problem and Jesus simply solves that legal problem by his death then there's nothing implicit in that that would suggest that our lives would really have to change at all um However, if the problem has something to do more with our very natures of who we are as people and that Christ's atoning sacrifice cleanses and restores us, then that would obviously have a huge impact of our understanding of the gospel. So that when we talk about coming to salvation in Christ, putting our faith in Christ, that's not simply just getting uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card from hell and getting your ticket to heaven, but that, in fact... What we're doing when we're putting our faith in Christ is we're basically entering into chemotherapy. We're saying, Jesus, rid me of this disease. Restore me to the sort of person that I'm supposed to be and uh, set me right with God. And so it's a much more holistic sort of understanding. I think that's what James Chung is driving at here in his book. And that holistic understanding extends beyond just simply our own individual salvation. And that's something that Shalandra Jones presses Caleb to, to really fully grasp. And you see this in Romans 8, where Paul talks about how even creation groans out for the, the revealing of the sons of God, of, of God's of the, of the consummation of God's salvation and restoration of all of creation. Because the gospel, God's work of redemption, isn't just simply for our souls, certainly. It's for our bodies, because God's going to resurrect our bodies from, from the graves. But he's also going to restore all of creation. He's going to make everything new. And that includes... Um, all the things that we enjoy. He's going to restore cultures. He's going to restore. He's going to restore the arts. He's going to restore all these things in the end. But that work also begins today. Just as our perfection, our moral perfection, our being 
the exactly the sort of holy and righteous people that we're supposed to be will only be totally completed in the end. So it is the case with everything else, but we don't say that, okay, well, we don't need to <laughs> strive to be the sorts of people that we're supposed to be. No, God begins that work in us today. And so in the same way, God's been working out the redemption of everything else, even here today. God wants the arts to be redeemed. He wants our homes to be redeemed. He wants governments to be redeemed. He wants all of them to be redeemed. He wants creation to be redeemed. We should be working to take care of the things that God has called us to take care of. Now, obviously, we can't fix it all on our own. And it's waiting for the final day when Jesus returns and he sets everything right finally. But God's work of redemption seeks to redeem everything, all that God has created to be good. And in the next section, we're going to be getting into that a little bit more um, as we consider how we've been sent together out into the world to bring healing. Um, but as as you just reflect on this, I encourage you to refer back to the scripture passages and just consider how they parallel the narrative that has been told in this section. Because more important than the narrative that James Chung is laying out here is the narrative of scripture. What does the Bible have to say about this? And if we find that uh, the Bible is saying exactly what James is saying here, then it's pretty important that we get this story right and not present a narrow vision of salvation in our presentation of the gospel. Well, that's all we have for this week. I'm looking forward to reading your responses to the reading, and I just hope that uh, you're finding this material helpful beneficial and i hope you'll be encouraged by our next section sent together to heal which is pages 149 through 188 and just all the scripture passages as well until we meet again or rather you hear my voice on these airwaves this is pastor tom saying over and out